more than six months after the coronial inquest into William Tyrrell's disappearance was suspended because of the pandemic and more than 18 months after it began, the final week of evidence finally played out this month. It revealed never-before-heard testimony from a local woman who heard a scream the day after William vanished, which sparked a new search near where a key suspect was living. A memory expert cast doubt over the testimony of a key witness who claimed to have seen William being driven away from the scene. The new lead detective on the case also took the stand and answered tough questions from William's family, revealing the strike force investigating their little boy's suspected abduction has been slashed significantly. And on the final day, for the first time, we heard from William's big sister who says if no one else is going to find her little brother, she's going to become a detective when she grows up, so she can do it herself. This is Where's William Tyrrell? My former colleague and co-host Natasha Belling is no longer with Channel 10, so she'll no longer be joining me for this podcast. But I do want to say a massive thank you to her for everything she has done. Her passion and dedication to this case has been very evident throughout every episode of this podcast, and I can't thank her enough for what she's done. In her absence, though, today I've asked Dr. Xanthi Mallet to help me unpack all the latest information. Xanthi is a criminologist and forensic scientist who has followed this case since the beginning and has been at the coroner's inquest for all the testimony we're about to discuss. So Xanthi, tell me, what drew you to this case? Oh, I think so many people are really fascinated by how a little boy, you know, William can just disappear without trace. And it really reminded me of um, the Madeleine McCann case, actually, from the UK, which was one of the first that I kind of really watched in detail when I finished my PhD. And and that really struck me. And it's kind of, this is another one where we have these beautiful pictures of these little innocent kids and and no news of what happened to them. And it's that mystery, I think, that, that grips people. Um, Yeah, and so I've been following it from the beginning in the hopes that we would learn some news that would tell the world what happened to him. Since our last episode, I travelled once again up to Kendall in June after I received a tip-off that there would be a new ground search for evidence in the William Tyrrell case. A team of right squad officers and SES arrived at a semi-rural property about 10 kilometres from Benaroon Drive where William disappeared. The search crews led by the William Tyrrell Strike Force set up their command post near a large bushland property adjacent to the property where convicted pedophile Frank Abbott lived when William disappeared. In previous episodes, we've obviously spoken about searches near Frank Abbott's property They've been searching in and around that property for quite some time now, but this one was much more specific. I learned that it related to a woman who had come forward recently to report that she heard a child scream the day after William disappeared in the direction of the bushland behind her property, and that's where this search was conducted. Now, I reported all of this at the time from the search site on 10 News First as it happened back in June, 
As I mentioned at the start of this episode, a few months later, in the first week of October, the final week of the coronial inquest got underway and this woman took the stand. Her name is Anna Baker and she lives on Miles Drive in Herons Creek, a short walk across a paddock to the property where Frank Abbott lived at the time that William disappeared. She told the court the day that William went missing, which was Friday the 12th of September 2014, she was going about her business when she heard that a little boy had wandered off into the bush in nearby Kendall. The next morning on Saturday the 13th, she went to Kendall to help in the search for him. She said she searched for about three hours and then she came home. That afternoon, she told the court she went out into her backyard to do some gardening and that's when she heard a noise. She said, and this is a quote, I heard a child scream out. It sounded like maybe he was hurt. I didn't see anything and I stayed out there for a while. But she added that she had no reason to think that it was William. She said she told her partner about it afterwards, but that he doesn't remember her telling him. But she did mention it to a friend a few years later. Some background here. This woman, Anna Baker, used to live in a different town nearby where Frank Abbott also used to live and had a bad reputation. So she told the court she already knew of him, but at the time she didn't realise he'd been living in the property adjacent to her house. Until a friend visited her years later and mentioned that Frank Abbott was living on the property behind her house when William Tyrrell went missing. Ms Baker told the court she thought Abbott was, quote, a creepy man who had a bad reputation. And when asked by the council assisting whether that reputation involved, quote, a perceived interest on his part in little children, she responded, absolutely, for as long as I can remember. So she told the court that when she learned that Abbott had been living nearby, that's when she decided she needed to tell police what she heard that day, which she did, and that sparked their search of the bushland behind her house. We heard some testimony about that search from the man who coordinated it, but there was no evidence that suggested they found anything significant. Xanthi, do you think this woman is credible? Well, I think it's a problem, isn't it, with memory? She obviously already had a very strong opinion of Frank Abbott. She she heard, you know, she sounded genuine in the fact that she heard a scream. Whether she was right with her days, whether she heard what she thought she heard or whether she's kind of projecting a memory onto a almost her image of Abbott is actually really very difficult to ascertain at this point. So I think her evidence was useful. Um, However, I think we have to be very careful in how much weight we attribute to that because of all of the problems associated with her pre-existing knowledge of Frank Abbott. In terms of the search that they did of that area, obviously they thought this evidence did warrant a search, but they didn't actually give any testimony in the inquest that suggested whether or not they found anything significant. Why do you think that is? Well, obviously, this is still an ongoing investigation, although the investigative team has been significantly scaled back to kind of, you know, five investigators, including the um, senior investigating officer and a couple of analysts, then, you know, whether they found something or not, maybe something they want to keep intelligence-wise to themselves. They often, you know, don't want to share too much with the public. So although this was a public inquiry and we're obviously trying to, you know, everyone's got an interest in in finding out what happened to William, they will be giving the coroner information in confidence. Um, So we wouldn't necessarily expect to be told details at this stage, but I mean, I think some information would have been nice, but um, yeah, they weren't really pressed on that point. And I, I would have liked to see the officer in charge kind of questioned more around what was found, but um, we're still as much in essence in the dark as we were before the search even began. Do you think that if they had found something, they would have mentioned it? 
I think that would depend on what it meant to the investigation. I think if they'd found, I wouldn't have been surprised if they'd detailed some evidence that they found that had been discounted um, to show, you know, that obviously they still want the public and the families involved to know that they're still looking. Um, so I would have possibly expected some information, you know, to outline the depth of the search, you know, um, the details around that. But if they found anything that was going to be potentially a strong investigative lead, they might well keep that themselves because that may be something that they'll need to question a person of interest about at a later stage. As you mentioned, Ms Baker does have a strong opinion of Frank Abbott. And as we've mentioned in previous episodes, Frank Abbott has been representing himself at this inquest via video link from jail where he's serving time for child sex offences. And he was given the opportunity to question Ms Baker himself. So this started a very heated exchange between the pair, which prompted the coroner to step in. Abbott accused her of just trying to cash in on the reward money by giving this testimony. And she told him, quote, you're the only person close to that bush and you're a pedophile. So that makes sense. You know something, Frank Abbott, she said. Now, obviously, this is based on a lot more than just that scream that she heard. Yeah, absolutely. You know, she she knows about Frank Abbott's history. He's obviously in prison on those charges, as you mentioned now. Um, and I mean, Frank Abbott saying, you know, you're just trying to cash in on the reward, which is very significant. We're talking about a million dollars here. If she offers information that leads to some information coming forward that helps find William, then she is perfectly entitled to that reward. Um, that's what everybody wants. We all want to know um, what happened to him and he deserves to go home. Currently, we have no idea where he is. Uh, so, yeah, well, if she earns that reward by passing on information, then I think everyone would rather see that reward given than be left not knowing. And that's what it's there for. Exactly. Yeah. So if it elicits information from the public, that's exactly its purpose. I do want to acknowledge here that despite Abbott being present on the video link for the majority of the inquest, he did not take the stand himself at all to be questioned. Now, we can't legally tell you why that is, but we will not be hearing from him at all during this inquest. During the last week of the inquest, the lawyer representing William's foster parents made an application to call former lead detective Gary Jubilant as a witness. As we've mentioned in previous episodes, Jubilant was taken off the case and then left the force last year before being charged with illegally recording conversations with Paul Savage. After a lengthy trial, he was convicted of those charges and fined $10,000. He appealed those convictions, but his appeal was recently rejected, so his convictions will stand. Nonetheless, he was there every day during the final week of the inquest this month, as he has been throughout the last year and a half, sitting in the courtroom when the foster parents' lawyer made an application to call him as a witness. This is the second time during this inquest that an application was made to call him, the first time the coroner rejected it. This time, though, the foster parents' lawyer told the court there was information about how the investigation was conducted that only he could know and that they needed to put him on the stand to find out. This application was again opposed by the counsel assisting the coroner, Jared Craddock, who said there was nothing he could say that the police still on this case don't already know and that he should have passed on all the necessary information when he left the force. The coroner agreed. She told the court the focus of the inquest needed to stay on William and it would be, quote, appalling if Jubilant was to hold back any information, which she said there was no reason to think that he would be. So she again rejected that application, which means that Jubilant will not be called at all during this inquest. Xanthi, do you think it was a mistake not to allow Mr Jubilant to testify? 
Yeah, I absolutely do. You know, on the on the Tuesday when the inquest opened of last week, uh, we spent an hour and 40 minutes learning about search strategies. And I know an awful lot more now about how wood is chopped up and how search you know, areas are cleared. And so that was worthy of the, the court's time, but apparently not hearing from somebody who led the investigation for four years. And that's the longest period of time that we've had an officer in charge of this case. Um, the argument being, as you mentioned, that there was nothing that he would know that the current investigative team wouldn't know. But my counter argument would be, well, how can you really say that unless you put him on the stand and ask him the questions? Um, and I think that that was really something that shone the next day when DCI Laidlaw, who's the new officer in charge who took over, who said, you know, totally openly that he hadn't had a handover with Mr. Jubilin. And I was I was shocked at that. He apparently spoke to everyone else on the investigative team, but wasn't interested in in Mr. Jubilin's opinions on that. And I think given that he did lead that investigation for four years, that was something that really should have been pressed. Um, I think that is an incredible oversight for somebody taking on an investigation of this scale and relevance. And yeah, I was I was frankly shocked by that. And when um, GCI Laidlaw went on to say that they haven't even reviewed all of the information that was currently collected under Mr. Jubilin, because they decide he decided that there was nothing there of any investigative value. Um, again, how on earth could you possibly say that unless you go through that? And so to further not even speak to the man who arranged to have that information collected, I cannot understand that as an investigative strategy. And I think it's a significant deficit to this investigation. Absolutely. So let's talk about Detective Chief Inspector David Laidlaw. He took the stand finally um, in the last week of the inquest. Um, We haven't yet heard from any of the officers who have been in charge of the case, and he is the only one who did end up taking the stand. He is the current lead detective in charge of the strike force. He took over from Gary Jubilin in January last year. And when he took the stand at first, the counsel assisting only asked him a few questions, one being, have you given up? He replied, no, we never will. He then asked if he can elaborate on what the strike force is currently doing to find William, and he said he can't because it's an ongoing investigation. But he later told the court the strike force has not ruled anyone out, including all the known persons of interest and the family members. So, Xanthi, after six years, what do you think that says about the state of the investigation that they haven't ruled anyone out? Well, I mean, and that's kind of contrary to other things that have been said previously about some people have been categorically ruled out. So I was a little confused when DCI Laidlaw said that. Um, and and at the end of the inquest, I was frankly left with as many questions as, you know, as when we started 18 months ago, maybe even more, because when I thought DCI Laidlaw took the stand, I thought we were going to get some real insight into where we are now um, and where the future of this investigation is going. And, and frankly, after his evidence, I, I was left confused and um, a little concerned about the direction, especially um, given we were given so little detail. And I think really the public deserved more detail than was provided and certainly the families deserved more detail than was provided and there was certainly some tension between the foster family and DCI Laidlaw as part of that evidence and the victim impact statements which I'm sure we'll discuss and yeah I am concerned about where the investigation is going now and what resources are being put towards it so I hope that there are positive steps being taken but I was not left filled um, with comfort following DCI Laidlaw's evidence. And it is quite unusual, I believe, to have an inquest in the middle of an ongoing investigation where 
the officer in charge isn't able to publicly reveal all the information about what they're working on, which kind of defeats the purpose of having a coronial inquest. Do you agree? Absolutely. I think it's very strange timing um, because that was, you know, the answer was I basically can't tell you anything. And I was sitting there thinking, well, basically, why are we here? If the purpose is is to elicit information that could help find William Tyrrell and what happened and the officer in charge of the investigation who holds that key information at this point in time can't tell us anything, how can this really be progressed? So I think the timing was strange because now the coronal inquest is closed. They won't be hearing any more evidence. Again, I think we're left in limbo. And I just think that must be such an awful situation for the families. If I was frustrated by that, and I imagine you were after following this case for so long, and everybody else who is in some way interested or connected to this case and how, how the families would feel. And that I felt really felt them in court after the end of the evidence. And when it was closed, because I thought, what do they do now? you know, what what chance is there now for them getting the answers that they desperately need? Yeah, and we will get to um, what was said by the family members shortly. But Detective Chief Inspector Laidlaw remained on the stand to be questioned extensively by the other parties being represented in this inquest, despite the fact that the counsel assisting didn't really question him at all. And the lawyer representing the foster parents had a lot of questions for him about how the investigation is being run, understandably. They asked about the handover between himself and Mr. Jubilant, which we've spoken about on previous episodes and you just mentioned before, Xanthi. Mr. Jubilant had claimed there was no handover between him and the new lead detective, and that's something the foster parents were very concerned about. So Detective Chief Inspector Laidlaw admitted he decided not to do a handover with Mr. Jubilant, telling the court that when he did try to talk to him, quote, I found the investigation wasn't at the fore, end quote. So he decided instead to get all the information he needed from other members of the team. He claimed that would be sufficient because it wasn't only Jubilant who knew where the investigation was at. And he told the court, quote, I believe in we rather than me. Xanthi, would you expect it to be standard procedure to do a handover in these circumstances? Absolutely. I've, I've never heard of a situation where the officer in charge of an investigation of this scale has not been asked for their insight. Um, given Mr Jubilin's experience, um, commitment to the case, absolutely ask everybody else their opinions as well. But if you truly believe in we, then that means everybody on the team. And why you would exclude the person who has oversight of everything is totally inexplicable to me. And I don't think that DCI Laidlaw was pressed on that point. I don't think he explained his rationale. Had I been counsel questioning him, I would have wanted him to justify that because I think that is a potentially a massive deficit to the future progression of this investigation. The other key issue that the foster parents wanted to question Laidlaw about through their lawyer was the resources that are currently working on the case. Again, in previous episodes, I've mentioned their claims the strike force has been significantly reduced since Jubilant was taken off the case. This is a claim I've previously put to New South Wales Police and David Laidlaw himself in person, but they have refused to confirm how many investigators were actually working on the case. However, on the stand at the inquest, he was forced to admit that it had been significantly reduced. He told the court that in the early days of the investigation, at the height of it, there were around 26 investigators working on the case, and now there are only five, including himself. He claimed they are all on it full time, although as a detective chief inspector, he also has to manage other cases. Santhi, what do you think that says about the investigation that it has been significantly reduced? 
Well, certainly if I was looking at this from the family's perspective, I would wonder if that meant there was less commitment to actually progressing this investigation. Whilst we all understand there are com competition for resources, you know, and the police have to be very careful about where they allocate those resources. One case cannot receive more attention um, than others, and, and they have all of those kind of competing issues at, at all times. I think that the fact that it has been so significantly reduced and that the first time that this has really been admitted, and it was only admitted basically as part of this evidential procedure, I think, again, leaves me concerned about the future of this investigation. And certainly if I was the family, I would be asking some pretty strong questions now about what commitment DCI Laidlaw and New South Wales Police have to really solving this when, um, you know, obviously so much work still remains to be done. And it will continue to be done until we find William and, and we all want that to happen. So we'd like to see the resources put into this. Another line of questioning from the foster parents lawyer was around a huge chunk of surveillance data that is in the system, which was gathered when Jubilum was on the case, and that's not yet been analysed by investigators. Anthony, you touched on this briefly already. Laidlaw was questioned about this and told the court he had made the decision to stop analysing that data, which includes hours of covert surveillance material, because he didn't believe it would be of use to the investigation. Now, he didn't say specifically what that surveillance data related to, but we do know that while Jubilin was on the case, the strike force was focused very much on covert surveillance of Paul Savage, the neighbour who lived across the road. And the court heard the foster parents are concerned there could be useful information in that data that won't be found. Xanthi, do you think that that needs to be analysed and that perhaps they could be missing out on vital information? Absolutely. I mean, there may be nothing in there that's going to be useful, but how on earth could you possibly know until you review it? I mean, obviously within your job um, and mine, uh, I imagine you, you go to, you know, you go deep diving when you're looking into a case. You look at everything, you review everything and, and you do not know where those little nuggets are maybe lurking that could break something wide open. So again, this was a totally inexplicable answer from DCA Laidlaw. And I've, I've heard this investigations before that a decision is made, you know, preempting what you might find. And ultimately, years later, you know, those errors um, are reviewed and that information is reviewed and suddenly, you know, there's a gem in there. So again, this is for me, it is certainly far from an ideal investigative strategy. And I would have pushed him more on that as well, because I think that needs explaining. All of that information needs a, a decent dig into to make sure there's nothing in there that could have helped. Dr. Helen Patterson, who is a senior lecturer in forensic psychology at Sydney University. She specialises in memory retrieval and examining the effects of traumatising events on memory. She testified in the last week of this inquest and she gave an expert report on several witnesses in the case, including Ron Chapman. Again, you'll recall in a previous episode, he was a neighbour who claimed to have seen William being driven away from the scene in a car on the morning of September 12. He told the inquest that he is 100% sure it was William wearing his Spider-Man suit that he saw in the back seat of this car, which was being driven by a woman. However, he didn't tell anyone, including his family at the time. He only told police when they later approached him after hearing on the grapevine that he'd been telling some locals that he saw it. So Dr. Patterson told the court it is possible Mr. Chapman is telling the truth and he did see what he claims to have seen, but that it's also possible he didn't see it but believes now that he did because she spoke about a phenomenon that can alter memories. Xanthi, what's your take on Dr. Patterson's testimony regarding Ron Chapman? 
Well, I think it was very general because, you know, she was obviously talking to how memory works and how false memories can be implanted, which is what you're you're speaking to there. This It's such a, a widely publicized case that memories can actually be created because, you're, you know, you're thinking about situations and imagining what could have happened. So somebody can tell an absolutely true, in that sense, um, account of something they've witnessed. And actually, it can be not based in fact at all. It's something that their memory or their mind has created and they convince themselves they've seen. And it's totally impossible to say whether it's a true memory or whether it's a false memory that's been created. So whilst her evidence was interesting, I'm again, not really sure that it progressed us any further in understanding what happened to William, um, because no conclusion can really be reached from that. She mentioned that it was possible that um, perhaps Mr Chapman did see a child in the back seat of the car, but then later saw William Tyrrell on the news and his memories subconsciously altered to believe that that was the child that he saw. Do you think that's quite possible? Yeah, absolutely. And we have this come up all the time, you know, when somebody is accused of something in the media and, you know, somebody may see their face, they then kind of almost internalize that and, and think that they can contribute to an investigation. So, you know, this is something we know happens. It's a standard phenomena and memory experts and um, psychologists, you know, recognize this as a problem. So he could well have been absolutely telling his truth, but whether he saw it or not, we can just not determine. Dr. Patterson also commented on the memories of William's foster mother, specifically that she recalled seeing two cars parked on Benaroon Drive before William disappeared We've not really heard much testimony about these cars in terms of there being a question as to whether or not she saw them. We obviously don't even know if they existed, whether they were even connected. Based on what Dr. Patterson said, do you think that those cars were there? Well, I certainly think that the foster mother thought they were there. And actually, I was quite surprised that those questions were led because I didn't actually realise that there was a question mark over that. She certainly believed she saw them. We have no reason to think that she didn't see them. We don't know, as you say, whether they were connected or not. But just because nobody else saw them, that doesn't undermine the foster mother's testimony as to what she witnessed. So again, it kind of felt like, you know, we were working around the vagaries of the outside of information that could have been gathered as part of this inquiry, because I was thinking, well, I already took it as a given she saw the cars. So I'm not even really sure why we have a memory expert commenting on some of these generalities around memory creation when when I had already accepted that she was telling her truth. So on the final day before the inquest wrapped up for the year, William's family were finally given their chance to speak to the coroner. They've sat through many hours of evidence from dozens of witnesses about what might have happened to their little boy and it was finally time for them to have their say. William's biological parents weren't there in person but the lawyer representing his biological father gave a statement on behalf of the family as she sat next to his biological grandmother who was present in the court for much of the inquest. That statement described William as, quote, a beautiful baby, a really happy boy who really loved his father and his father loved him. The court heard William's father was desperate to keep him and he cried and screamed for his dad when he was taken away by family and community services. The statement said his father had seen William in August for the last time at a supervised visit and on the day that he went missing a month later, he said he felt something bad was going to happen. The statement said, quote, imagine having your son taken away and doing everything to try and get him back only to find out you'll never bring him home. The court heard William's father will never be the same again. Xanthi, this case is very unique in the sense that there are two different families that are affected by this, his biological family and his foster family. I understand that William's father was too ill to be there, 
this statement was read on on his behalf. However, we also heard that both families have apparently not yet been ruled out conclusively. How do you think they must be feeling about this at this point? Well, I mean, obviously, this is very distressing for them. So to be told in open court that neither have been ruled out must have, you know, added to their emotional and psychological burden at this stage. have been waiting for now six years to find out what happened. So, um, yeah, I think that was an insensitivity by DCI Laidlaw when he confirmed that. I mean, it was a question that was put directly to him. So he was kind of on the spot. But I think that must have been very difficult to hear. You know, there was a lot of emotion in court. People have been, obviously, the families are incredibly traumatized and damaged by this. So, yes, that would have been very hard for them. And um, some reconciliation around, you know, the accuracy of that, because that's not necessarily what has been, you know, said before is who's been ruled in and who's been ruled out. So I think that was particularly hard for the families to hear that day. So William's foster parents, who have spoken extensively to me in previous episodes of this podcast, gave a lengthy statement after handing the coroner three photo books featuring pictures of William and his sister with their foster parents. They stood side by side as they told the court about their beloved son, describing him as a jovial, boisterous little boy with the cutest little walk and swagger. He always made us smile. His giggles were infectious. They spoke of the incredible bond between him and his biological sister, who was only slightly older. They told the court they've had to watch her heartache play out and see her cry with guilt because her memories of her little brother are fading. The court and the media room then fell silent as they played a heartbreaking recording from his big sister. She's now 10 years old and she wanted to have her say at the inquest. We can't play you that recording, but I can tell you what she said. And this is a quote. This is my brother we are talking about. In my mind, no one is trying. So I've made the decision to do something about that. I hope this speech today makes you solve the case. If it doesn't, when I'm officially an adult, I will be in the police force, specifically a detective, and I will find my brother and won't give up until he's found. Not a day goes past that we don't think about him. He's a loving, kind, sweet boy who was annoying at times. But the day he disappeared, we lost everything. We lost my innocent brother. He needs to be found, so please help our family. But most of all, me. Find our precious William. His foster parents then went on to lay out their grave fears for the future of the investigation, many of which they have previously spoken about on this podcast. They spoke about the empathetic relationship they had with former lead detective Gary Jubilant compared to what they have now, which they described as a cold attitude towards them since Detective Chief Inspector Laidlaw has taken over the case. But it was the admission from him that there are only five investigators currently working on the strike force that has them deeply concerned. They told the court, quote, today we are at the same point we were when the investigation began six years ago. How can the investigation into a missing three-year-old boy have its resources so significantly reduced when there is so much more information that needs to be examined? Every day this heinous crime remains unsolved, the perpetrators remain at large and are capable of committing other monstrous crimes against children. No other family should ever feel the need they have to fight tooth and nail for those people in leadership positions to take notice. It's now been six years and 26 days. Every day the sun rises and sets is another day without our precious, funny little boy. When William's sister is asked, what do you think you'll do when you get older? She says, I'm going to be a detective so I can find out what happened to William. It should not be her mantle to pick this up. We will never, ever give up on William. Now, Xanthi, you've touched on this earlier, but 
it is understandable, don't you think, that they do have grave fears for the future of this investigation? Absolutely. And, and after sitting through much of the inquiry, I share their fears. The tension between the foster family and DCI laid law was palpable in the actual courtroom. And as their victim impact statement was, they read that out. And as um, their foster daughter, her evidence was played, her statement was played, DCI laid law was just sitting off to the side, making notes and shaking his head. And frankly, from an outsider's perspective, I found that very disrespectful. This was the family's opportunity to have their voice. And regardless of how he may have felt about that as the lead investigator, I think he could have been more respectful to them and at least acknowledging what they were saying rather than just shaking his head and not giving them any kind of eye contact. And even when they took their seats, he didn't look at them. And personally, I found that a very cold response. And given what that family has been through, I think a little more respect was warranted. And that did give me concern that what they were saying was actually reflective of the cold attitude of DCI Laidlaw towards them, because that was something that I certainly felt sitting in that, that room that day. And I think that's a very sad indictment of where the investigation is actually at. Because regardless of whether he agrees with their fears for the future of the investigation and regardless of the criticism that they are levelling at him and his team, you can't argue with the fact that they have been through the ringer. This case has been turned into a political football. It has become about so many things that don't involve William and they are justified in feeling like the focus has been taken away from their little boy who is still missing. Absolutely. And he may take that personally, but his job as an officer in charge, he's a DCI. It's his job to make the family feel confident in the progression and leadership of this investigation. So he needs to swallow down however that may make him feel. And his duty is to those families and ensuring they do feel informed, they do feel included, they are aware of what is going on because they have a right to that, both the biological and foster family. And I do not think he did himself any favours in court by sitting there simply shaking his head and not giving them any eye contact. And I think that that is a major concern. And I really, again, thought that was an extra burden for the family when they feel excluded from this investigation and don't have that kind of deep understanding that they felt with when DCI Jubilin was in lead investigator. So in closing the inquest, the Deputy State Coroner, Harriet Graham, acknowledged their pain and difficulty in sitting through this very lengthy inquest. It's taken more than a year and a half to hear all the evidence. She told the court, quote, I take the task before me very seriously and remain committed to finding the truth. So she will deliver her findings in June next year, which is nine months from the final hearing. Xanthi, that's quite a lengthy delay. What do you make of that? Well, as um, the Deputy State Coroner explained, she is obviously running other inquiries simultaneously. So she is reviewing her findings and all of the information she's heard simultaneous to running those. So it is a time consuming process. However, having heard much of the evidence, you know, over the past 18 months, um, I'm really not sure what she can conclude because I didn't hear anything that has really taught us anything or, or moved us forward. So I can't really see her concluding anything other than an open finding and that probably William is deceased at the hands of person or persons unknown. That's what I'm expecting. So I, it's sad that the families are now going to wait, you know, nine months for basically a non-conclusion. Um, she did say she took the inquiry very seriously in finding out what happened to William. But again, I would question why DCI or 
now Mr. Jubilin wasn't allowed to speak. Um, so I, I don't necessarily agree with how the inquiry is run. And um, I hope that more information is forthcoming as a result of, you know, more people taking interest again in the case because of the publicity around it. But I can't really see that the inquiry itself has progressed anything very much. And I can't see that the outcome when we do hear that conclusion is going to be very progressive either. And that was going to be my last question to you. What do you think is going to happen from here? Her findings in June, you believe will be an open finding. What happens then? Well, unless some significant information is is led by, you know, as through intelligence by the task force or review of the information or whatever investigative leads they're following. You know, there's there's some hope there, even though, as you mentioned, we only have now five investigators working on that and two analysts. Um, and I, I guess it may come back to the public. You, you would have seen many times in your career as well. Sometimes, you know, you just need somebody to call in with that, that snippet of information. They may not know how crucial that is, but within the bigger picture of the investigation, if the, you know, the officers working on the case, you know, do get that crucial evidence that could break it open. So I, again, I'm, I'm a little reticent to have much confidence in where the investigation is going from what I've heard. However, I am hopeful that somebody in the public knows something. There is a million dollar reward on offer. And if that's what elicits information, then, you know, by all means, I want to see that claimed. Um, so that's really where my great hope lies now is with the public and their engagement with this case. This inquest, as we said, has taken a year and a half. Extensive public resources, court time. I can't put a figure on it. I will try to put a figure on it once it's all over, but um, I can imagine that it is a lot of public money that has been spent on this inquest. It is one of the longest ones that I've sat through. What do you think it has achieved? Well, you know, I hate to say it, but I don't, from my perspective, from somebody who's also sat through, you know, one of the longest inquests I've ever seen, um, I can't see that it's really achieved anything. I don't think it brought any, I don't like the word, but closure to the families. I don't think they will feel very comforted by by the way that this has gone forward and, and the evidence that was heard. Um, I certainly have more questions than when I started. Um, so after all of the resources, all of the time and all the you know energy that's been put into this and anxiety on, on behalf of the family and friends of William, then I can't see that really much has been achieved. And I think that's a really sad outcome to be sitting here this week and saying that because I was hopeful. But as things stand, yeah, I think we're no further forward. And at the end of the day, at the end of this inquest, there is a little boy who is still missing. And we, it seems, are no closer to finding out what happened to him. And that's very sad for everyone involved, but obviously, especially his families. Now, if there is any more developments before the findings are handed down in June, we will obviously update our listeners on those. But until then, it seems that we are at an impasse as to what happens with this case from, from here on in. So thank you so much for being with us, Santhi. I really appreciate your time. Thanks very much. New South Wales Police say the investigation is still ongoing and, as always, they're urging anyone with information to come forward. But the inquest into William's disappearance is over for now. We will update you with the coroner's findings in June next year, but in the meantime, I will continue to be involved in the case. I'm still in contact with his foster family and if there are any developments, we will update you as soon as we can. 
Where's William Tyrrell is written and produced by Leah Harris. Edited and produced by Stuart Buckland. If you have any information that might help with this case at all, please contact police. This has been a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. Ten News First Person brings you quality stories from the Ten News First team. Yeah, it was intense. It was Armageddon. Eyewitness accounts from people that were there. I just started to try and free myself. You know, I had one free arm. I was able to dig around my face and free my other arm. Interviews with power brokers, journalists telling the stories that matter most to them. But it's about time that they started listening to the people. There's people power now. We will not be silent! Subscribe to 10 News First Person on Acast or wherever you listen to podcasts.